Well, I wanted to start off this morning just kind of highlighting a couple uh, of the things that have happened over the last week or two that, or the last month or two that um, I'm really thankful for. And uh, last week we got to hear from our high school students who went to Biola University last month for Unite West. And uh, that was extremely encouraging to have them participate, leading the service, and just to hear how God had worked in their life. And then also, you know, we have lots and lots of kids who either have been to camp this summer or uh, are headed out on the last week of summer camp here before back to reality and school begins. So just keep them in your prayers. Uh, God uses those experiences in really incredible ways. And for many of us, myself included, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, was present in an especially powerful way for me as a kid at camp. And so that's always on my heart and my mind, and um, I hope it is on yours too. Last Sunday was an incredible Sunday. Uh, a bunch of us went to the Mariners game, and so here we have uh, Leo Beimer, and uh, he's really loving that hot dog there. Um, that I, I get, he gets to sit next to me of all people during the game, and it was sunny, and it was hot in the sun. Um, but what made up for it was Seafair was also happening, so it was like this. I mean, and the Mariners played amazingly, but there's like planes buzzing around the whole time, and so that was, that was pretty fun. Actually, uh, most people, it was like, first you would look up at the planes fly by, and then you'd watch, you know, a few pitches, and you'd look back up at the planes fly by. So very, very fun, and I'm glad that we got to do, with, do that with so many of you. Well, today we're going to uh, kind of wrap up our sermon series on Colossians. Uh, with chapter 4. And as I mentioned before, Colossians has been one of the favorite books of the Bible for me, both as a kid and as a young person and even as an adult. And uh, my favorite chapter in all of Colossians is chapter 3. And so the last two weeks, Matt Randalls, who I'm extremely thankful for to, to Matt and, and to Phil as they stepped in to preach over the last couple weeks while I was on vacation, they got to cover my favorite chapter. And so I, I can't help myself. I, I have to say something about that chapter too. Um, but in Colossians 3, Paul's comparing what you and I were like before knowing Jesus and the transformation that happens in our life and in our soul. Uh, he compares that to changing clothes. And I loved how full, Phil framed it last week as it's a wardrobe check. And so just like the clothes that we wear can be seen by everyone, uh, the way that we act, the way that we behave, our, our ethics, our choices, uh, who we are, that's, that's apparent for the rest of the world too. And so uh, Phil called it a wardrobe checks, check that, as Paul's saying here, we take off things like dishonesty, sexual immorality, greed, lust, rage, slander, these ugly things. They're like shabby and threadbare clothing. And instead we put on, we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. And I love that image. Phil described it as like custom-made designer label clothes that God provides for us. We're, we're, we're going to take this, this stuff off that we know is just dark and bring us down. And we're going to put on something else instead. Jesus once told the Pharisees, Out of the heart your mouth overflows. Meaning, you can try and whitewash your actions, your words, your behavior as much as you like, but the real issue, in fact, we could even call it human nature, the real issue is that our heart is 
is corrupt, it's broken, it's fallen. And until you allow God to redeem and renew your heart, the darkness inside is just going to leak out. So why spiritual formation, or what we call spiritual formation, or discipleship, or spiritual growth? Why that's so important, it's this process of change that requires us and our will to join God's will. And there's an invitational piece of that. Like, we have to enter into it. God empowers us to transform. He restores and heals us. He's the one doing that work. But there's a, a, a side of it that we have to enter into in, intentionally. So clothe yourself, Paul says, with compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. And then he goes on to say, bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So after this, these very beautiful phrases that the Apostle Paul kind of strings together, he seamlessly goes into this next section, which Phil very expertly kind of uh, explained, but he didn't dive in there. And uh, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I am going to dive in there. Um, at the close of chapter 3, there's a section that's labeled Instructions for Christian Households. And I always smile when I, when I see that heading because that's been put in there by uh, publishers, you know, Bible publishers of today. And it's meant to be helpful. There's these little editorial kind of, oh, this next section is about this. It's instructions for Christian households. And uh, in the German language, sections like this are called Haustafel. And I don't know German. That's the only German word I know. Okay, in spite of what Phil told you last week, I do not know German. My last name is German. It's a mess. I can't even spell it. I'm 47, okay? So I don't know how this is pronounced. I should ask Chris Schmidt because he probably puts Hustafel, Haustafel. Um, it means household cold, code. Cold, sound like household, household code. And uh, it was probably, that term or designation probably comes from Martin Luther, who 500 years ago decided, hey, I should put this in our, in our short catechism, which is still super long. But he put this household code, like this is the way that Christians in the same household are to relate to one another. And it's husbands and wives and children's, children and also masters and slaves are covered in this passage Maybe we would read that today as employers and employees. I don't know. But it's how all of these people are to relate to one another in a Christian house. So in 2022, when, uh, when you hear that language, does it trigger you? Like, how do you feel about that? Wow, a household code. Like, this is how it's prescribed that people are supposed to relate to one another in a Christian house. And I just encourage you uh, that before you pass judgment, either one way for it or against it, one way or the other, that whenever you read stuff like this in the Bible, you have to be aware of your own personal experience and your own cultural like surroundings affect how you read it. 
because it's significant. And uh, I talk about this because I think of um, like our high school students that were on stage last week and our college students and young people as, as they read the Bible and they encounter this, they're getting messages all the time from the surrounding world on how they're supposed to relate to one another and, and how things work. And sometimes that's at odds with Scripture, and sometimes it's not. And so when you encounter this stuff, you know, how you read the Bible is important. To be aware of your own experience and your own biases. And you also have to know something about the culture of the day it was written. The most common pitfall is reading our current, you know, understanding of life into, into Scripture. And especially when it talks about hierarchies or authority, how we understand that authority is different than how it would have functioned, you know, 2,000 years ago. So, uh, two things I want to cover uh, as it relates to this. And you're like, Dan, what are you talking about? It's the part where it says, you know, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. It says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Children, you know, obey your parents. Uh, fathers, don't exasperate your sons. And then it goes into a section about how masters and slaves are supposed to relate. And so a couple of comments on this. As it relates to immediate family relationships, notice which member of the household in, in those passages is singled out the most. It's the man. So often the abuse that happens with these passages is, and I've had people make appointments with me, sit down in my office, and you know, I can tell that it's the wife and she's describing, usually describing what appears to be a very abusive or very lopsided relationship at home with her husband. And inevitably, one of these verses will get pulled out. Well, my husband says that I'm supposed to submit to him. And that's always when, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stands up because it's like, oh, that is, how that's being applied is not what Paul means here. If you look at this passage in the big view, the guy is being addressed potentially three times. That's kind of a major amount of responsibility in my book. And it's following a section where all all people, all Christians, are meant to treat others with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's completely at odds with an attitude of like, oh, I get my way no matter what. Whatever I decide in this house, everyone else has to do and just fall in line. That is not the attitude that the Apostle Paul is expressing here. This is falling right on the heels of this beautiful section on clothing, taking off all of this stuff that's broken in us and putting on what God, what the Holy Spirit wants to transform and renew in us. And living at peace with one another and bearing with one another and forgiving. Not holding it with a heavy hand over everyone in our house. The other thing that I want to talk about is as it relates to slavery. And I always feel like I, I, I kind of have to stand up for the Bible here in, in certain circumstances because over time, this has been so horribly abused and misunderstood 
The Apostle Paul, as he's talking about slavery, I mean, we have the Romans to thank for a lot of things in history, but it seems like we always give them a pass on, on this social institution, which is ugly. Slavery. And often in the Roman world, it's an indebtedness. Yeah, you got yourself into this situation by becoming indebted, and now you get to work it off in this very, you know, set time frame. But the Romans also had evil slavery, which would be like what we understand with colonialism or the African slave trade or what existed in the New World in the United States. And so when Paul brings this up, he's not like giving that a pass. He's not glossing over it. In fact, uh, his comments are pretty radical. No one cared about slaves at any point in history, even then. And so he's addressing them as people, as members of a household. He even names a slave named Onesimus at the close of this letter. And we happen to know that from other New Testament letters, Philemon, that Onesimus is a slave who Paul advocates his owner to set free. So when we see these little glimmers into the social strata of 2,000 years ago, and also of what, what the kingdom of God, what families look like in the kingdom of God, before we transfer all of our own stuff into the passage and understand it, we have to see how it was functioning in that time and in that era. And you'll see that it's pretty radical what Paul is advocating there. There is a mutuality between people uh, that, that is over and above the social hierarchy. We're all created in the image of God, and that means something significant. So clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. So all of this in chapter 3 highlights the significance of relationships to followers of Christ. And if you look at so much of this letter, it's concerned with that, with forming healthy and thriving relationships, first with God and then with each other. And relationships, the last time I checked, are really hard, aren't they? I mean, we stub our toe, we make mistakes, we blow it all the time. And so, you know, it's easy for us to expect to be given grace when we make mistakes, but it's hard for us to give grace when others make mistakes. We have to give grace. And this whole theme of relationships, that that fits with our understanding of God. God is a personal God. He's a relational God. We're created in his image, which means we're like him. And God is forever in community. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God made us to live in community with one another too and with him. And so you, you, you take a quick look at the world around us and it's impossible to miss how fractured relationships are within our world. So in this letter, you see a progression. The first two chapters are talking about how we've been reconciled, it's a relational word, with God. Then the focus turns in chapter 3 towards relationships with one another. There's a very, very direct correlation there. 
Once you've begun to live in Christ, once your relationship with God is renewed, you're being transformed, that overflows into all of our relationships with our family, our friends, our work, and our world. And so now in chapter 4, um, the focus is going to move you know, from, from that outward. It's going to kind of move out to the people outside of God's family. And the Apostle Paul says this to the Christians at Colossae. He says, and we'll put this on the screen for you, for you to read along. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the ways you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Sometimes I wonder if we as followers of Christ, we read that backwards, that last piece. Let your conversation always be full of salt, seasoned with grace. (laughs) I don't know. No, it's full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This morning, we're going to kind of dial in on that first, uh, just where it says, devote yourselves to prayer. See, Paul wants the Christians at Colossae, and us too for that matter, to practice the one thing that will ultimately sustain and strengthen their relationship with God. Pray. Paul instructs Christians at Colossae, and also us too, to practice the one thing that will ultimately unify, build up, endear, and strengthen their relationship with one another. Pray. Paul instructs Christians to practice the one thing that will ultimately break down barriers, create an openness for others to receive the gift of life Jesus offers. Pray. Paul wants Christians all over the world, people he's never actually met, to practice the one thing that will ultimately preserve and sustain and strengthen him. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. Devote yourselves to prayer. You know, I was reading a a news story about the benefits of mindfulness. And, you know, there are lots of clinical studies that have been done, you know, in the last 10 years, establishing the usefulness of mindfulness in combating things like anxiety or depression. And, you know, even just 10 minutes a day of of kind of meditating can make a tremendous difference. You know, some people have even stopped using medication because they've started this habit, this practice of mindfulness, and it's, it's helped them. So for Anyone who isn't like, so what's mindfulness? Well, um, mindfulness involves times of meditation. it's, It's like learning to develop an awareness, you know, being mindful of different thoughts that come into your head. And, uh, one article cited a man who learned to be aware of, of, you know, he would have these debilitating thoughts, these, these voices from the past, these images, they would come to mind. And, I mean, it would just, like, nearly shut him down. And so he, he was working on, when he would become aware of that, oh, that's one of those thoughts again, he would just tell himself, that's just a thought. It's nothing more. 
Feelings are not facts. Feelings are not facts. And so for him, just like developing that awareness in his mind was so tremendously helpful. So, you know, as I was reading this article, I kind of smiled because these researchers, you know, they're actually talking about prayer. At least as I, as I see what they're saying, I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's prayer. And they've quantified this clinically, how useful, how tangible, how physiological it is. You know, um, in 2 Corinthians 10, followers of Christ are instructed to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. This is what that means. You know, researchers have quantified, they've confirmed that a morning quiet time of prayer and meditation on a scripture, it isn't just for grandmas and spiritual giants. Quite the contrary. It affirms what Jesus, the Apostle Paul, countless Christians have known for the last 2,000 years, that being devoted to prayer has real-world results. Real-world results. And it's more than just a version of self-help. Prayer is a fundamental way of communicating and communing with God. Sometimes you can even use words. Amen? Well, being devoted to prayer, at its root, the word devote means to be strong. To be strong, and it has this ongoing, continuing nature to it. Some translate this phrase as continue steadfastly in prayer or persist in prayer. And that idea is something that goes all throughout Scripture. I love First Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament, 16, verses 8 through 11. Let me read them for you. This is about prayer. Give praise to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. That's a beautiful image of what it means to pray, or to be devoted to prayer. Seek his face face always. That's the continual, ongoing nature of being strong in prayer. So if you fast forward to the New Testament, <clears throat> you'll stumble across this idea a lot. Um, interestingly enough, the disciples who were, you know, even though they were uh, fishermen and uh, tax collectors, and they were kind of this hodgepodge of people, not necessarily the religious elite, but they had grown up in that culture where, where prayer was ingrained in everyone and everything. And so it's interesting that after Jesus uh, is arrested and killed, uh, what did the disciples do? They were scared out of their mind. They hid, right? They thought that they were coming for them next. But in Acts chapter 1, it's an interesting thing to me that this habit pops up. It says, and this is Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Don't know what to do? Let's pray. Elsewhere in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are instructed. This is Ephesians 6. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert 
And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's really similar to the verse I read at the beginning of the service. 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to being watchful and thankful as Paul instructs people here, that helps describe how we should pray. Being watchful literally means keeping awake. Be watchful. Keep awake. Have you ever fallen asleep while you were praying? I mean, is it okay for a pastor to admit to doing that? This used to happen to me a lot. Phases of life, you know, that are really tiresome. I, I think like when our kids were little, we're raising kids, you know, we're constantly exhausted. And so where do you find time to pray? And then when you finally do, you realize that you were like drooling and you fell asleep. Like, oh my goodness. You know, Jesus, and you think of Jesus, he tells his disciples, he's like, can't you even stay awake for five minutes and pray with me? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm such a failure. I can't stay awake. Um, this is not what Paul is like. He's, he's not saying don't do that. He's talking about being a, a, a spiritual alertness. You know, sometimes it's good to fall asleep while you're praying. That's like resting in the Lord's presence. And when you wake up, you just go, oh, hmm, huh. keep praying again. You know, you, you try praying in the afternoon, you sit down, and you, 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 you're calm for a few minutes, and pretty soon you're like nodding off, right? That's okay. It's the idea of like, I'm entering the Lord's, I'm, I'm setting aside time to pray. I'm, I'm awake at night now. I have no, you know, I, I try and pray and fall asleep and I can't do it, but that's, that's just me, I guess. What Paul's talking about here is a kind of alertness, a spiritual alertness. And um, he's concerned that prayer is just going to become mechanical, something that you're just going through the motions. Okay, I can check that box. I prayed for today. Uh, or he's worried that Christians are going to be spiritually asleep. So let's think about that. As you and I go through our days, how could we be spiritually alert? How can we be watchful to the stuff happening around us? You know, if you use your imagination, there's all sorts of circumstances that happen any given day that can point us towards prayer. Um, you know, I, I think of when I hear sirens in the background, you know, a lot of times you just kind of, your mind just like switches it off. I mean, as long as you're aware that they're not pulling you over, right? It's just like, oh, there's a siren, and then you go back to doing whatever. Well, what if that was a chance, a, a prompt for you to pray? Oh, Lord, be with the firefighters, the police officer, whoever it is that's responding to that call. Be with the people that they're responding to. Pray that it's not a big deal that you'd be praying. I don't know. Like, that can become a way that you're spiritually alert to stuff happening around you. Um, maybe being spiritually alert means that when you run into that coworker with whom you don't hit it off with, maybe you've had some conflict or there's some tension there with them, Maybe instead of just feeling that angst, you could pray for them in their life. You could pray for the situation maybe that developed, that got you there. You could pray uh, that the Lord would help you discover something in common that would melt the ice between you. I don't know. That's being spiritually alert. What if when we read the news, instead of being frustrated at whichever political side you're on, 
and the other side is doing this now and back and forth. Or, or you read the news and it just feels so gloomy, like the world is horribly broken, it's never going to get better. What if we turn that instead and just allow God, and, and just turn that into prayer? Whatever it was that we were anxious about, whatever it was that happened. I mean, these are ways that we can stay spiritually alert to the stuff happening around us. That's what it means to be watchful, to keep awake. You know, prayer is an active, engaging conversation with God, an ongoing, um, something that happens throughout the day. And it's no coincidence that Paul ties being devoted to prayer, being watchful and spiritually alert to thanksgiving. Because when it comes to our own spiritual health, like the biggest litmus test, I'm convinced of this more and more, has to do with how thankful and appreciative and full of gratitude we are. And if that's something that you don't experience on a day-to-day or even hour-to-hour basis, you should be concerned. Thankfulness is a gauge for spiritual health. You know, one of the most common criticisms that people have of other people today, which is kind of laughable when you think about it, it's entitlement, isn't it? Oh, this next generation is so entitled. Oh, so-and-so at work is so entitled. Oh, this employee is so entitled. On and on and on and on. I'm not saying that it's not, you know, not true. But what is it to be entitled? It's, it's this you owe me attitude. You know, being entitled is like the opposite of gratitude. When you're thankful, it requires noticing things and people and situations beyond yourself. It, it's turning away from here, which actually might be some of the source of all of our anxiety and depression, and looking out there and noticing the good things that happen, along with the bad, but the good things that you're not expecting, that you're thankful for. Thankfulness is so deeply connected to our soul. It's so deeply connected to prayer because that's kind of how you let God in. It's funny, when you listen to a four-year-old pray, often they begin by saying, thank you for fill-in-the-blank. It's not a childish thing. It's a mature thing, actually, to notice and be thankful. And we can cultivate this easily. It helps us pray. It leads us into prayer. Oh, thank you for... And, and you just continue the conversation with God. Um, I've known people... I've tried this several times. I've had failed attempts. Um, uh, maybe I should try again. But I, I, I know people who, like, it's a spiritual discipline. They keep a journal of thankfulness. And they just make themselves every night before they go to bed. Um, they pull out their journal and they, they reflect on one or two or maybe there's three things during the day that they're thankful for. And what that does is it teaches you to be alert so that as things happen throughout your day, you're like, oh, I can write that down later tonight. I mean, that's how it starts out. 
oh yeah, there's something I can be thankful for. Because it's hard when you're like, oh, what are you thankful for? You just kind of get this, you know, the cursor is blinking. Like, ah, I don't know. But we can start to tune our awareness to the things that happen around us that are amazing and awesome, that are God's hand in action through the people around us and the circumstances around us. Giving thanks is a powerful, transformative effect on our daily attitude, our outlook, our relationship with God, and also our relationship with others. You want to root out your own entitlement in your life? Be thankful. And so this week, my encouragement, my challenge, my invitation to you is first, how could you devote yourselves to prayer? How could you become more strong in that area of your life? How could you work out your prayer muscles? And what would that look like in your life? Maybe it's a set time where you set your phone to 9 a.m. or noon or whatever it is throughout your day. Maybe it's just being more mindful of stuff as it happens in praying. I don't know. What could it look like for you? Second thing is, how could you become more watchful and spiritually alert? Where do you notice God's presence in your life? And the third thing, as it relates to being thankful, does anything stir in you? And if so, or even if not, talk about or talk to God about how you feel. What stirs in you when you think of being thankful? Talk to God about what you feel. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are never far from us. And I know in my own life, I rush from task to task. And that's not always particularly joyful or fun, but yet I do it. Lord, I know that not everyone is like me, but I know a lot of us are. And that kind of doesn't allow you room to work in our, in our life and in my heart, especially. So I pray, both for me and for my friends here this morning, that we would get stronger in our ability to pray. That we would allow some air in our schedule and in our life and in our thoughts, Lord, for you to work, to notice the little circumstances and things that we can give thanks over, to see the people in our life, and rather than frustration or anxiety, instead of that, Lord, we would feel love and grace and compassion and patience for them, that we would just be thankful that they're in our life. God, help us to make this transformation. Help us to be devoted to prayer, to be watchful and thankful. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.